0: Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this opportunity. We pray now, as we continue to worship you in your word, that you would direct our thinking, humble our hearts, teach us by your Spirit the truth that your word declares. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone has a differing opinion about any given president. As long as there have been presidents, there have been opinions about their platform and performance. A popular expression that has arisen over the last period of time is, hashtag, not my president. As if a simple declaration makes it true. I have news for Anyone that may feel that way, um, it's not true. Like it or not, if you're a citizen of the United States, um, President Trump is your president. It was true the eight years of President Obama before him. It was true the eight years of President Bush before him. It was true the eight years of President Clinton before him. The four years of President Bush before him, and the eight years of President Reagan before him, and you could just keep going. The reality is, if you're a citizen, whoever is the President of the United States is your President, like it or not. Now, this is not intended to be a political discussion, but rather to focus our attention on something, and that is this. Some things are true, whether you agree with them or not. As we continue our study of the mission of the church through a survey of the book of Ephesians, we must understand the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ our Lord. We must understand the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ our Lord. As we read at the beginning of our worship service this morning, the psalmist in Psalm 145 speaks of the greatness of God. This will be on the screen uh, to my left and right where he writes, "...I will extol you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever." Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and His greatness is unsearchable. The psalmist goes on a little later and he speaks of God's character when he writes, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all that He has made. And then a little later in that psalm, He speaks of God's kingdom where he writes, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. These are statements of fact. About our God. This is who he is. And this is the kind of kingdom that he orchestrates. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Jesus spoke of his authority this way. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been, has been given to me. Throughout the book of Ephesians, there are numerous passages that speak of the authority of Jesus. And for our discussion this morning, we want to be reminded that he is our exalted head. He is our exalted head. He is the head of the church. As we consider the mission of the church, we must see it in light of Jesus' authority. This will serve to prompt us not to deviate from the mission to which we've been called. Since it's Jesus' authority that we serve under, and He issues a mission, because we know of His authoritative role, we can be constantly reminded never to deviate off course to find some other way because He is our exalted Head. This will also serve to comfort us Because it is his mission. It's not our mission. It's his mission. And as the exalted head over the church and exalted head over the mission, he will ensure its fulfillment. And it will motivate us, uh, understanding his exalted nature, it will motivate us, for it gives us opportunity to be involved intimately in God's ultimate, eternal purposes. Our mission our mission is inextricably inseparably linked to the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Our mission is inextricably or inseparably linked to Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. We looked at a number of mission statements from the book of Ephesians. Now, we're we're looking at the book of Ephesians through the lens of a mission. The, the, the passages that we've looked at didn't say, hey, you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do the other thing because as we noted last week or the week before, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians have one command in them. One. So as we're looking at it, we're seeing the things that God has done and we're learning from that and extracting from that what the mission of the church is. And so we noted from chapter 1, That the church testifies of God's greatness. The church testifies of God's greatness. It is... He who chose us, adopted us, and secured our salvation. It is Christ's work that has redeemed us, paying for our sin, buying us for himself as an inheritance. It is is the, the work of the Spirit who seals us, giving us a down payment from God of our eternal glory. And so we rejoice in that. The church is to declare or testify of God's Greatness. Secondly, as we move to the end of chapter 1, we notice that the church displays, or is to display, God's character. Because it is His fullness that fills the church. The church is to be filled with the fullness of God. And so the world must see the character of God in the church. Thirdly, as we moved into chapter 2, the church demonstrates the good works of God. It tells us that we, the church, are God's handiwork Workmanship, or the the Greek term is poema. We are God's poetic masterpiece. And before the church, he has laid out before us a grouping of good works. Well, the second half of the book of Ephesians lays those out nicely for us. The church demonstrates the good works of God. The good works of God. We never take credit. We don't say, hey, look at me. Look at how great I am. We don't say, hey, hey! look at what this church has done. It's always, always supposed to be exalting and turning our attention upward. It is God who rules. It is God who saves. It is God who sustains. It's God who redeems. This is His job, not ours. Then we saw at the end of chapter 2 that the church is no longer enslaved by racial, religious hostility. The church is no longer enslaved by racial, religious hostility. That is a beautiful passage. And I commend to you meditating on chapter 2 from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Particularly if social justice is a thing for you. If it it has derailed you positively or negatively, look at Ephesians chapter 2 and recognize what God has already done to break down the barriers. It's amazing. As we get to the end of chapter 2, our fifth mission statement, so to speak, for the church from the book of Ephesians is the church is the dwelling place of God. The church is the dwelling place of God. Remember, what's going on with that dwelling place? Well, there's a foundation of the apostles and prophets. And who's the cornerstone? Jesus Christ is. And laid on top of that, is the church. We're part of God's building project so that God could dwell in us. Um, now, in chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14, he dwells in us individually. the end of chapter 2, he dwells in us corporately. It's quite a beautiful thing. So, that's the, the review. As we get to number 6, as we get into chapter 3, the first item that we come to is the church has been entrusted with the gospel. The church has been entrusted With the gospel. Look at what it says in verse 1. For this cause, or for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the, here's the key word here, stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul was entrusted with a stewardship of God's grace in verse 2. The result of that stewardship reveals something of God's mystery in verse 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles, or the world, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise, the promise, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. All people can be fellow heirs, united together, recipients of God's blessing, members of the same body, not separate bodies, not, not the Jewish body and the Gentile body, not the, uh, the, the black church and the white church. Not the Asian church or the Haitian church. It's the church. It's the church. God has grafted us in together into one beautiful, beautiful work. And then, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Well, the promise that's going to remind us back to, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that God said, through the seed through the seed of Abraham, all the earth will be blessed well the seed that brought that blessing do you know who he is his name is jesus christ he is the son of god he is the seed of the woman he is the one who crushes the head of the serpent back in genesis 3 as well as romans chapter 16 he's the one that has brought to, to fulfillment the promises that god has made The church has been entrusted with this gospel. Paul was entrusted with this stewardship, and the result of that is this union of people that receive the promise of Jesus Christ. Paul received God's grace to be a minister, it says in verse 7, of this gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Now, God's grace is God giving us something we don't deserve. It's God empowering something He's called for. So God makes a requirement, and God supplies the necessary ability to fulfill that requirement. That's grace. And so, Paul has been entrusted with this stewardship of the gospel that brings people into Christ. He's received grace for this. Verse 8 the grace was given to preach to the world. Look what it says in verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, that's everyone that's not Jewish, we just call it the world, to preach to the world the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. We have another term for that the gospel. To preach the gospel. I've been entrusted with the stewardship of God's grace. The stewardship of God's grace brings people into to, to be fellow heirs. It makes them one body. And it makes them partakers of the promise through Christ. I've been received grace to do this. And that grace gift that's been given to me was to proclaim the gospel to everyone. This is the job of the church. Now, here, the, the, the concept is that it's Paul's stewardship. But who is he giving that to? He's giving it to the Ephesian church. Why did they receive it? Because they're like every other church in all of history. They needed this instruction and it was for them to proclaim the riches of Christ. This work of proclaiming the gospel continues through the church today. We demonstrate and Proclaim the gospel. The results are the salvation of souls and the glorification of God in this current age, in this world, and among the angelic realm. This is just incredible. Look at verse 10. So that through the church, what is the church doing in this context? Proclaiming, receiving, And demonstrating the Gospel. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the the multifaceted, multicolored tapestry of God's wisdom, might be made known to who? What does it say? It says, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is otherworldly we're talking about here. Now, as we proclaim the gospel, people on earth are experiencing it, right? As we're demonstrating the gospel, people on earth are being impacted. This is great. The church is being impacted. That's glorious. But as the angelic hosts look upon God's creation in the church, they are marveling at his incredible wisdom. You took a guy like that? You took a guy like that, and you joined him together with a guy like that? And and with a girl like that, and a guy like that? You took them, and that motley crew can function together? Isn't that what they said about the disciples? These uneducated, unlearned people are turning the world upside down. What is going on? That's That's the human perspective. What are the angelic hosts saying? Now remember, in the heavenlies, what else is there? What else is in the heavenlies? Well, in chapter 3 and verse 1, that's where all of our spiritual blessings are. In chapter 6, it says we're at war, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, etc., etc., and they're located in the heavenly places. So there are good entities in the heavenly places and good things in the heavenly places, and then there are opponents in the heavenly places, and all of them are looking on the church and saying, I can't believe what's going on over there. Why is that? Because the church demonstrates the promise that God made to Abraham years and years and years ago. And God is bringing it to its completion. This is a work of God. The church, the church has been entrusted with the gospel so that that awe can be there on earth, in the heavens, and wherever angels dwell, whether they're demonic angels or whether they are Elect angels. God is working through the church. The church is entrusted with the gospel, though. That's our, our mission. From God. As we move further into the end of chapter 3, Paul prays for the church. And what we want to understand from this, as far as a mission is concerned, the church must know and display God's great love. The church must know and display God's great love. This prayer is, uh, is wonderful. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He might grant you to be strengthened, strengthened, that's grace, with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. The word there, dwell, is to dwell down. It's a, it's a deeply seated dwelling. Now, this isn't like, Okay, well you, you, get, you get Jesus at salvation and then you get more of him later. That's not the point. The point is that he is dwelling comfortably in your life. The concept is that he's at home in your life. So he says that, the, that you might be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love, so he's talking about stabilizing us, may have strength, there's more grace, to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, listen carefully, that surpasses knowledge. Try that on for size. He wants us to understand how wide, how far, how high, how deep is the love of God and it blows our minds. It blows our minds. We can't learn about it simply by reading. We understand from Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 that God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts through His Spirit whom He has given to us. We understand from 1 John that we love because He first Loved us. So what he's praying about is not, hey, get in the book and study. That is also very important. We must be people of the word. We must be students of the word. But he's talking about something beyond that in this particular prayer. He's talking about a a supernatural enlightenment toward what God's love is and accomplishes and how it never ends. It, it always makes me Filled with great joy when I think of Jeremiah 31. Particularly where God says to a people who are in exile because of their rebellion against him. God says I have loved you with an everlasting love. These are people that are being disciplined or chastened for their unwillingness. To do what he said. And God says, I want you to know, even while you are in exile, even while you are in captivity, I will not, I cannot stop loving you. This is the glory of the gospel. He doesn't love me because there's something intrinsically wonderful about me. It's not because I have a spark of divinity in me. It's because he set his love on me. He wants the church to know this unfathomable love so that we are solidified in it. So we understand it. And so then we can demonstrate it and proclaim it by God's grace so that other people can see and know and experience this love that surpasses knowledge. He goes on and he says, "...to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled, filled with all the fullness of God." If it ended there, it would have been a glorious prayer. But he adds 20 and 21 to it, and it makes it that much better. It says, Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, he's doing it within us, to him be glory in the church not outside of the church, in the church and in Christ Jesus, how often? Throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is his prayer. He's praying that I, that we, would understand his love so much, that it impacts us so much, that it fills us, that God's character and The parts of his nature that can be conveyed by us will be on display for a world around us so that he might be glorified. And who is the one who ensures the completion of this mission? Well, of course it's me because I am the pastor. No. If you're dependent on me, I'm very sorry, but I am going to fail you far too many times uh, than I would like to admit. The one who makes this happen is God himself. Christ himself he is doing this work so we look at this and we say okay the church must know and display God's great love we move into chapter four we move into chapter four we only have a few more minutes to do this the church has been called to walk in unity The church has been called to walk in union. Now this is now the application section of the book of Ephesians. So he's reaching back to some of the things that God has already told us in chapter 2 and chapter 3 about the work that he has done. There are so many ways, there are so many ways for people to be divided. There are ethnic and racial lines There are cultural and generational gaps. There are intellectual and socioeconomic divisions. There are personality chasms. Listen carefully, please. We're going to read the text in just a moment. When we allow these differences, we function as the unredeemed. Did you hear that? When we allow intellectual differences to divide us, socioeconomic issues to divide us, racial issues to divide us, ethnic issues to divide us, cultural things to divide us, when we, when we allow uh, personality chasms to divide us, generational gaps, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm of the new generation, and those people are old fuddy-duddies. I want to be in a hip place we allow these kinds of things to separate us, we are acting just like people that don't know God. They don't have Jesus Christ. They have not been grafted in to God's glorious purposes. Why does the church struggle in these areas? Because we do too often what we feel rather than what we know. There are whole groups of churches that are for one grouping of people. Listen, and there might be a great purposes for some of that, so I'm not, I'm not making gen, I am making generality, so there are exceptions for why someone might have a niche towards some group of people for a reason. And it might be a great reason. It might be all good, okay? So there are exceptions, but there are far too many where it's dividing things up say that's for them and this is for them. That's That's not the call. The church was called to walk in unity. Let's see what it says. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Endeavoring to maintain the unity of the Spirit, His unity, in the bond that God gives of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, called, same as verse 1, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all sp- uh, specifically of believers god has called you and i us he's called us to live in unity through the humility he has given us through the spirit and that unity is based upon the very person of god in verses 4 through 6 isn't it it's it's based upon the person of god is god divided When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, when a person comes to know Christ as their Savior, they are united together with Christ. They're baptized into Christ. That's what the Spirit does. 1 Corinthians 12.13 That means, regardless of the differences that we have in our natural man, all of that's broken down in Christ because we're united together in Him. So the church is called to walk in unity. Folks, there are so many ways this can be broken down and we need to look at ourselves. We need to look at ourselves. If we're worried about age, if we're worried about culture, if we're worried about personality, we're talking, well, those people aren't smart enough for me, those people are too smart for me, whatever the case may be, God's called us together. We we walk and serve together. This is one of the missions of the church. Well, the last one we can deal with this morning, the second half, or the middle section, actually, of chapter 4. The church has been given grace gifts to both solidify and build itself up. The church has been given grace gifts to both solidify and build itself. So the, the concept here, God's doing something. God is giving something. It's a grace gift. It's to make us stable, solid, on a foundation, and to enable us to minister in such a way as to build one another up, to build the church up. And so let's see what it says here. Verses 7 and 8. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men how many people in verse 7 how many believers have been given grace gifts how many everyone each one every believer has been given gifts of god's grace there's no one excluded there verse 11 god has given gifts to the church. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles and the prophets. They laid the foundation, right? The evangelists, they feed the church. Feed people. Feed people into the church. And then the shepherds and teachers, well, what are they doing? They're, they're edifying them. That's what it says in verse 12. They they build up the church. They equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So the pastors and the teachers, what they're doing is they're equipping each one that's fed into the church so that they can fulfill the work of the ministry. So God is giving us a job. We've all been given grace gifts. There are specific grace gifts for the church, and the church must fulfill its ministry. We are supposed to be looking like Christ, according to verse 13. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, well, what is that mature manhood? Well, it's to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're supposed to be looking like Christ. This Christ-likeness is the end result of this kind of ministry. Verse 14 lets us know that we don't want to, to neglect those that are fed into the church. We need to minister grace to them, minister truth to them, so that they're solid. They're not tossed to and fro. It says in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So the church builds people up so they're solid in the faith. That's the goal. In verse 15, we're to be living and speaking the truth. It says in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, it actually says in the, in the Greek, truthing it in love. It doesn't say speaking, it says truthing. So It's a weird word. So our... Translators supply speaking because that's a way that the truth comes out. But it has more involved in truthing than just speaking the truth. It is a, a demonstration in our our way of life and in the way we speak. So we're to be truthing it in love so that we may grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And then finally in verse 16, the church is to be building itself up. That's been implied in verse 12 and 15. Now it really comes... To our attention in verse 16, it says, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part that you and I, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it is so that it builds itself up in love. All of this All of this. You see the church being solidified. You see the church building itself up. All of this is so that the church might allow Christ to be the fullness. The fullness in it and through it. Look at verse 10. It says, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. Anyone know who that is? (laughs) That's Jesus. (laughs) So the one who descended also ascended that He, Christ, might fill all things. Now, He fills all of heaven, right? In His glory, and He's reflected there, right? Isn't that true? And now what the the goal is, that the church is also reflecting Him, demonstrating Him, that His truthfulness, His gospel, might be seen in us and from us. So that's what what this is all about. We're, We're building one another up. We're being solidified. This is always the desired End result. We're not trying to build the name of our church or the name of the pastor of our church. We are desirous of demonstrating the majestic worth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We follow and proclaim our exalted head. We follow and proclaim our exalted head. This is as much as we have time for in the sense of giving details through these sections. I do want to just list out for you the headings of the rest of this survey, just for your consideration. You're not going to have time to write them all down. If you want some notes later, I can supply them for you. In chapter 4, verses 17 to 32, we recognize this mission for the church. The church has been called to live in a new productive way. Next, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, the church's new way demonstrates God's character of love, light, wisdom, and rejoicing. And then from chapter 5, verse 22 through chapter 6, and verse 9, the church is to display proper order in home and work relationships. And then you come to that final main section of the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, the church has God's protection as its mission is under attack. When we boil it all down, our mission is to know, love, and demonstrate and preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to know, love, demonstrate, and preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And it is our opportunity this morning to celebrate together the Lord's Supper.